Hello and welcome to the Riverside Church podcast. This week's sermon is read by Steve and it's entitled Jesus Anointed by a Sinful Woman. The reading is taken from Luke chapter 7 verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will he love more? Sorry, now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Good morning, everyone. It's a good story, isn't it? It's a great story. I love these uh, stories in the Bible that seem to end with a phrase like this one, the other guests began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And you find that little phrase, who is this, uh, on several occasions in the Gospels. Um, There's the time, of course, when Jesus was in the boat and they were about to be overwhelmed by the waves and he calmed the storm. And the disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? At times when he had raised people from the dead, who is this that even the dead are raised at his word? And who is this that, that demons come out when, when he speaks? And here we have this phrase, who is this who even forgives sins? And actually this is a unique verse really because all the others had been done before in some measure by other people. You find in the Old Testament stories of dead people being raised. And uh, you find stories, miracles amongst nature where, you know, the, the sun stands still in the sky, for example. 
But nowhere do you find someone forgiving sin because only God himself could forgive sin. And here Jesus is affirming the forgiveness of this lady on God's behalf as God. So it's a a truly lovely story. And um, there is no doubt as to who this woman was and what she was. And you have to read between the lines sometimes, don't you? But we know that she was a woman, the Bible says, who had led a sinful life in that town. Why does it say in that town? Well, it wants us to know that everybody in that room knew exactly who this woman was. She was a lady of the night, a lady who partook in the oldest profession in the world. And you can't help but wonder, can you, if a number of the men in the room on that day might have known her in more ways than one. It's speculation, of course. One of the um, benefits, if there are any benefits, of having had a little operation is that there is a recovery time at home, and I've used that to do a lot of reading around this subject and uh, heard the opinions. Terry does this every time. I kind of not quite like that, but I made myself do it, and I read and looked at what people say about this passage. And I came across something which surprised me and something that I'd never seen before. It's many, many years since I've preached on this passage. And actually, what I think I'm bringing today is quite different. And there seems to be a general agreement amongst theologians that this woman most likely had already heard the good news of Jesus Christ and already received forgiveness for her sins on a previous occasion. Well, how do we know that? Well, the translators say that in the Greek text, from which, of course, we get our own translation of Scripture, this story is written in what they would call the present perfect tense. The present perfect tense, particularly in the Greek context, refers to an action that began in the past but continues into the present. So there is an inference that this story doesn't actually start here, but we're picking it up here. Well, that shouldn't be a huge surprise to us. We know from John chapter 21 and verse 25 that not everything that Jesus did is written down in the Gospels. Tongue-in-cheek, the writer says, if everything were written down, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to contain the books. And so it's probably not a great surprise that we don't know all the details. But we can begin to surmise what might have been the case, and I submit this to you, that this lady might in fact have been one of the many hundreds and sometimes thousands in the crowd listening to the gospel of grace and mercy, knowing that she needed the gospel of grace and mercy and was responding to it, but now had found an opportunity to actually get to Jesus, whereas perhaps that opportunity didn't exist before. We know, don't we, that the crowds trod on his toes, they pushed him, they shoved him, and and it was hard to get near Jesus. If you read the previous chapter, and I think it's important that we just spend a little bit of time here, we actually come to understand what this woman might have heard and why she responded the way she did. 
in the previous chapter, that's chapter six of Luke, we find Jesus talking about several things, but three very pertinent things, things that would have been very pertinent to this lady anyway. The first he's talking about is love your enemies. Now she knew that she was a sinful woman and by nature an enemy of God. Romans 5 and verse 10, Paul talks about as being by nature enemies of God. But now she's understanding that if the Messiah is teaching love for enemies, then surely she, as one who knows she has sinned, also now knows that God must love her too. And you can imagine the ray of hope that must have hit this woman when she heard those words from Jesus. Only ever probably before, having heard religious words, reciting of scripture mechanically and methodically from Pharisees and teachers of the law, suddenly she's in a crowd where a man is saying, you're loved by God. And you can just imagine her saying, me? And you can you see the light coming on in her eyes as she receives this message of hope. Have I got my clicker down there, please? See, I always forget that, don't I? Thank you ever so much. So here's a picture of the lady, the lady who would have been in the crowd. The Bible tells us in Romans 2 and verse 4 that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. We ought to really learn that verse, you know. God doesn't get you to repent by pointing a finger at you and telling you what a wretch you are. He gets you to repent by melting your heart with kindness. That's what he does. God's kindness leads to repentance. Martin Luther King, the spokesperson for the civil rights movement from 1955 until his assassination in 1968, he said, love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. He went on to say that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And don't you see that just so beautifully modeled in the life of Jesus? It was love that causes enemies to become friends. So she'd learnt in the crowd about the love of God. But then Jesus goes on to talk about judging others. Well, she must have known what it was like to be judged by others. We see this all the time in the, uh, in the Gospels, that this, this hypocrisy that exists, particularly in the, in the Pharisees and, and people that, that were embedded into the religious system, this, this sense of, of judgment on everybody else no doubt whilst keeping all kinds of secrets inside. Perhaps that's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Look nice on the outside, but full of dead bones on the inside. That's pretty direct, isn't it? We find this time and time again. Do you remember the story in John chapter eight where the woman has been caught in the very act of adultery and she's been grabbed by all these men, forced into the temple for a mock trial prior to stoning her? And isn't it interesting that uh, they, they came with the stones before the trial? It's a bit like in the Westerns, isn't it, when they turn up at the trial with a rope? 
And that's what they did. And, and there is Jesus in the midst of all this hypocrisy. And he hears something from God, which is um, so important because there's a potentially explosive situation. A woman is about to lose her life through a sin. And these men are about to stone her. And, uh, you know, the text of, of the scripture says that, that, that Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And you probably know the story. They started to drop the stones. But there is a, a strong um, train of thought amongst theologians that actually Jesus didn't say that. He actually said, let him who is without this sin cast the first stone. Oh. All these men have got the rocks in the hand and, oh dear. And it says that they started to drop them, the oldest first. Well, they've been around a bit longer. And, and this is how, this is what hypocrisy does, isn't it? And maybe, who knows, maybe the many men in that room knew her in the biblical sense too. I've been reading a little bit about um, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and theologian, an anti-Nazi dissident, and a key founder of the Confessing Church. And he said this, I don't know if you can see it there on the screen, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Hypocrisy enables you to forgive a particular sin in yourself whilst holding others accountable for the same sin. Jesus had a right job on his hands with this hypocritical culture. And it's so fascinating to me that he found it so easy to forgive the likes of this woman the sinners, and yet found it so difficult to break through the hard, encrusted hearts of those who were hypocritical. And Jesus also said in the previous chapter, do not judge, and you will not be judged. There's an inference there, isn't there? And if we do judge, we'll be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And you can imagine this woman hearing these words and thinking, maybe there's hope after all. Maybe even the sins that I've been committing for so long. And who knows how she got into that, why she got into that. Maybe it was to save her family from starving. We just don't know. But hope comes to her through the teaching of Jesus. And then finally in this previous passage, Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish builders. And you know the story. Jesus said, listen to the words of mine and it's like building a house on rock, but go your own way and it's like sinking sand. You've got a nice house, but until it's tested by the storms, you won't know whether it's going to stand. And there's some cracking pictures on the internet of houses built on the sand that haven't stood. I've not got those today. And this woman would have felt the hand of God coming down and grabbing her and pulling her out of quicksand, 
which was going to kill her and consume her. But the crowds were there, huge crowds. How could this woman whose heart had been rescued, whose sins had been forgiven, ever get close to Jesus? Well, she couldn't get to him before, but now she's heard that Jesus is going to the house of Simon. Oh, she knew that house. Don't know how, don't know why, but she knew that house. And there she finds Jesus at the table. You know how they used to eat in those days. They would recline at a table, a sort of semi-lying down position. The table would be in a horseshoe shape and the servants would come into that horseshoe gap and distribute the food. And here, this hopeless lady finds hope and with it an opportunity to get near to Jesus. The common understanding is that she gate-crashed the party. But did she? I was surprised to learn that it wasn't uncommon, can you believe this, that rich people, when entertaining a VIP, would actually invite ordinary people to watch them eat. (laughs) Showing off. Isn't that awful? Simon's plans had backfired. She breaks the ranks and she does the unthinkable. Wow. Apparently that's what they did. And here here is Jesus with this vast following. Simon says, oh, I'll have him at my house for dinner and I'll just invite a few of you to watch us. Just incredible, isn't it? But now, at the feet of the man that she couldn't get to before, not knowing if she'll ever get the chance again, she anoints his feet with this expensive perfume in an act of worship that has been recorded and will be known until the ends of the earth. What a lovely picture, a response, that she'd heard the message, that she couldn't get to him, but now she can, and she brings her most valuable possession, the perfume. If we go back to the first time that worship is mentioned in the Bible, it has sacrifice at its heart. It's the story where Abraham thinks he's going to have to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on the altar. That's the first time worship is mentioned. That would have been an act of worship. Thankfully, he didn't have to do it. Instead, many years later, God sacrificed his own son instead. But worship, wonderful as it was this morning, isn't just about singing. It's about the generosity of spirit thankfulness to God and living our lives in response to what he has done for us. That's worship. And now she's at the feet of the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the desire of nations, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the judge of the entire universe. And nothing is too much to make her worship acceptable to him. And then there's Simon, and he's watching all this going on. Could there have been two more opposite people than this lady and Simon the Pharisee? Reminded me of the story we find in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee goes to pray in the temple along with the tax collector and the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like him, Lord. Thank you that I'm not like other men. 
And the tax collector simply beats his breast and says, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Seven words, seven words that got him into heaven. Seven words, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Simon treats Jesus like an equal, maybe even inferior. None of the customary courtesies that welcoming guests would normally have entailed. He scorns Jesus in his heart by saying, if this was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and would have nothing to do with her. Now, I've discovered that there are four words in the Greek vocabulary, all of which translate to the word if in English. And basically, they are if and it is, if and it isn't, if and it might be, and if and nobody can know. The word that Simon uses here is if and it isn't. If this man, and he isn't, was a prophet, he would have nothing to do with this woman. It's a story of two extremes, really, isn't it? And so Jesus turns to him, and we heard it in the story. Simon, there was a man who owed 50 denarii. Apparently a denarii is worth about a a day's wages. And there was another man who owed 500 denarii, and neither could pay. We just need to pause there for a moment, you know. Neither could pay. You might think, well, you know, 50 denarii, maybe I could make that up somehow. 500, no, I couldn't. But Jesus said, no, neither could pay. And we need to understand the nature of sin. It doesn't separate us from God in its quantity. It separates us from God, whether it's there, when it's there, in any measure. And it sounds odd to people very often when I say things like, a white lie will keep you out of heaven just as much as a murder will. Why is that? Well, it's because God is pure holiness. And to entertain us with any level of sin in our lives, even what we might consider the most minor nature of sin, will keep us out of heaven because we cannot live with it side by side with a holy God. That's why he went to those great measures to send Jesus to take all the sin upon himself. When we say he sent Jesus, he actually sent himself. Jesus was God, and only God could forgive sin. What a wonderful God we worship. I remember uh, Julian's dad, Dr. Tony Stone, coming here many years ago, and he told us about um, a story that uh, happened to him whilst he was doing national service. Some of you may remember it, but he had to do this um, assault course, and part of an assault course was that they had dug a huge pit in the ground, four feet deep, 20 feet long, 20 feet wide, and they'd filled it with the most disgusting things that you can think of, and basically what they had to do is run through it, and they had to take a run and full backpacks on everything and jump into this pit of swill and kitchen waste and and all all that stuff. And they got covered, absolutely covered. Uh, But his point was this, that whether people managed to jump 10 feet into it or only one foot into it, they all came out the same. 
And there, I think, is one of the greatest pictures of the nature of sin that I can think of. Whether you're good in the world's eyes or evil in the world's eyes, you need the same antidote for sin. That is the acceptance of the love of Jesus Christ into your life and the forgiveness of those sins. So she has perfectly modeled the response that God is looking for from each of us. That we understand the gravity of sin and its ability to separate us from God for all eternity unless it's forgiven whilst we still live on earth. That we should hear the offer of God's forgiveness. That we should know that God's forgiveness is complete and all we need. And that in response to it, that love that he's shown to us, we should live a life of love towards him extravagantly with adoration and generosity. Amen.